And so the Lord has led me, I believe, to, to go into the life of Elijah a little bit. Now we're going to read four verses from 1 Kings verse 19, chapter 19, and I want to have your f- minds and your, uh, your understanding focused on these verses, but we're going to go over more than just these verses. And so let me read them to you, and you can follow along if you wish. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 19 in 1 Kings. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I not make thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now these four verses kind of take out of context a little section of the life of Elijah, which kind of brings to a point where he was at a place in his life of complete despair. And I don't want to take this passage out of context because I'm going to spend much more time talking about what brought him to this point. Why did Elijah feel that he needed to run away hide in a cave uh, eventually he's not in the cave yet but he will he'll find him place find his place in the wilderness and just ask god to let him die and then he eventually winds up in a cave where the lord speaks to him so with this i want you to just notice some things about this before we get into the other passages and that is one of them is that Jezebel seems to be the main protagonist here. She's the one that's causing Elijah to fear for his life. And not just fear for his life. You see, he's been in dangerous positions before. But what he is now is experiencing is a lack of hope. And he's in despair. And he's saying to himself, everything that I've ever wanted to have happen has not happened. Everything I thought would be achieved has not been achieved. And I just give up. And that's what Elijah is experiencing. I want to get into the background of why and what brought Elijah to this point in his life. His very meaning, the name that he has, Elijah, has a special meaning. Jehovah is my God. That's what his name means. Now we're going to go back to uh, chapters 17 and chapters 18 and look a little bit more into chapter 19, and we're going to take a look at a little brief overview of his life and what brought him to this point. But for the most part, Elijah is a very dynamic person. As a matter of fact, people even recognize him by the way he dressed. At one point, Elijah was being sought by, by Ahab a lot because Ahab and Elijah had this confrontational relationship. I mean, their, their life together began with this, where 
where Elijah said, I'm going to go talk to Ahab because God has sent me to tell him that things are going to get bad. And right away, Ahab gets the idea, you're the one that's causing all the trouble. And of course, Elijah is saying, no, 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 you're the one causing all the trouble. And that was the relationship they had until the very end. But his presence was known by everyone. As a matter of fact, one time when someone said, I heard that Elijah was in this certain area. And uh, the question was asked, well, tell me what he looked like. And he described his clothing and he said, that's Elijah. That's the way he dresses. A little bit like John the Baptist, by the way. His appearance was a lot like John the Baptist. And so that's why not only in his appearance, but in the way Elijah approached preaching and his relationship with God, when John the Baptist came, it was said, he shall preach in the spirit and power of Elijah. But we'll get into that a little bit more later. Elijah had tremendous achievements in his life, something that many of us we would say, well, surely if that happened to me, I would never have any doubt. I would always have this ability to say, well, I know God is real and I know that God is able and that he's, and I've seen him work in my life. But I do believe that Elijah is described in the New Testament as a man of like passions as we are. And I think we're going to discover some of those like passions are very much like us. And we're a little bit more like Elijah than what we'd like to think. And so his life is described in the New Testament, not only in the book of James, but it's also described in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that chapter where we have the kind of like the hall of fame of faith? Well, he's not really listed as someone that does great things. He's listed in a way, in a kind of a, a shadowy way, of those who were persecuted and those who were hounded. Let me read the, the allusions to him. In Hebrews chapter 11, 35, we read, Women received their dead raised to life again. And you say, well, is that Elijah? Yes, it is. That is, he stayed with a widow, a Gentile widow, during the time of famine and drought. And this woman had a, had a boy. And this boy died. And Elijah prayed and brought him back to life. And so he was a man of faith, a man of prayer. As a matter of fact, Elijah is mentioned specifically in James as prayer. A man that could pray that had power with God. And so a person that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah doesn't only mean that he can bring fire down from heaven or that he can stop the rain, but he has power in that he can pray to God and God hears him. And that's why James says, the prayers of a righteous man is a very powerful thing. In Hebrews chapter 11, let me continue to read there. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn asunder. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and the mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And that is exactly what we're going to be seeing today. Elijah, after one of the greatest events in his life, 
was threatened by Jezebel, and he went immediately into the desert where he wandered for 40 days. Now, I'm not saying that this is exactly an allusion to the time that Christ spent in the desert, but I will say this. I believe that the life of Elijah can be compared to our lives in many different ways. And the children of Israel wandered in the desert 40 years. Eliza wandered 40 days. He eventually ended up in a cave where God showed him many things that he showed Moses. But eventually he spoke to him. And so with that, let's take another look at who Elijah is and how this power that he has and the strength that he has has been known by the way he prayed and the way he suffered and the way he went through depression the way many of us go through. Elijah literally is the standard that many go by as far as the saints being brave and faithful and a man of prayer. And so let's go and take a look at the background. In the Kings, there are two, two books of the Kings, actually these the you know first kings and second kings if you went to the original scrolls they would be one and therefore it was huge and so they divided the scrolls into two and so we have a translation where they become two books but there's really one story behind it and so we find the events that were in Elijah's life found in both first kings and second kings and for the first for the most part we start reading extensively about Elijah in chapter 17 and we see Elijah described as a man who is standing in the presence of God. He is that man that hears what God has to say. And God wanted to send him to Ahab. And when he sent him, when God sent him to Ahab, it wasn't to, to give him good news. It was more or less, in a way, to kind of pick a fight. He sent, Ahab, he sent Jer uh, to Elijah to, said, to say to, to, to Ahab, Everything around us right now seems to be very fruitful, very good. The land is filled with water, filled with fruit. Everything is good. And you know who's getting the credit for all that? The Baals. The Baals were getting the credit. Now, who are the Baals? They're the gods of Canaan. And they're the gods of nature. And when the people of Canaan worshipped Baals and made sacrifices to Baals, they were asking that God, that the Baals would bless them with fruit from the land, grain, water, all these things. And when they became prosperous, they forgot God. They did not say that the Lord was bountiful to them, that the Lord was kind and gracious and generous. They gave all the credit to Baal. And when the Lord told Elijah to go to Ahab, the big deal was this. You have been giving glory and credit to the one who is not God. Now, we're going to get to the point where we're going to see Elijah defeating all the prophets of Baal. And at the end of that contest, I'm going to repeat it later on, but at the end of the contest, all the people are going to say, the Lord, L-O-R-D, the Lord, Jehovah, He is God. Because the contest was, who is God? Are the Baals God or is the Lord God? And so the contest actually begins here in 17 when Elijah is sent to Ahab and said all these mercies that you received all the benefits that you received 
I'm going to show you whose hand they are really in. They are not in the control of the Baals. They're in control of God's hands, Jehovah's hand. He is the one that blesses or withholds. And to prove it, because my servant Elijah will say, he will pray and then the heavens will be shut up and it will not rain for three and a half years. Now, you may say, well, what kind of a miracle is that, that God should make a drought? That's not a real blessing. No, it was to give them the evidence that they should be honoring God and not other things, not the Baals. And so as soon as Elijah went to Ahab and told him what would happen, Ahab right away, you are not a nice guy. You are not the guy that comes here trying to be on my side and trying to help me. You are a troublemaker. As soon as Elijah made that pronunciation that there would be a drought, God sent him to a place by himself, by a brook called Cherith. And there God sent ravens to feed him. Now, I want you to remember the lessons that I taught in Revelation concerning uh, the woman who was to give birth to Christ and that the dragon was waiting for the, uh, for the child to be born. And what happened after Christ was born? He ascended up to heaven to sit on the throne. But what happened to the woman? She went into the wilderness to a place that was prepared for her for three and a half years. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems... There is a similarity here. There is a similarity between the life of Elijah and the church. and In other words, us. From the time that Christ ascended to the time when he returns. There seems to be a number of three and a half, three and a half years, 1,260 days or 42 months, however you want to divide it up. Because it works a little bit like this. Shall God give you a daily blessing? Or will he give you a monthly blessing? Or will he give you a yearly blessing? It all depends on how your needs are met by God and how he does this. But I want you to see that there is a parallel between what happens to Elijah and what happens to the entire church. And so Elijah is fed by this brook. Every day he receives his daily bread. Let us be thankful for God for his daily bread. Isn't that what the uh, man, uh, the, the, the wise man in Ecclesiastes tells us? You're not, you know, bringing, becoming a king isn't going to make you happy. Becoming rich isn't going to make you happy. But living every day according to the blessings of God, that's a gift of God. And so we see that then the drought starts taking effect. The brook dries up. And immediately God gives Elijah more instructions. He says this in 1 Kings 17, Arise, go to um, Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, which by the way is a, is a Gentile city, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now Elijah went and he found this widow, and they are suffering just like everyone else. As a matter of fact, when he sees her, he actually gives her a command that says, would you please give me some water? Now we're talking at a time when it's a drought. And so he asks a stranger, someone who doesn't have a husband to take care of her, someone who actually wants, needs to take care of a, a child who has her own burdens to, to have. 
And she knows within her own heart that she only has enough food and oil at home to eat one more meal before she says, we're just going to give up and die. And here's a man claiming to be a man of God who says, would you please give me a drink of water? And so she doesn't hesitate, but she does explain to Elijah. Because when Elijah receives the water, he says, now I want you to go and make me some bread before you do anything else. Bring me a little bread. And that's when she explains, I only have enough for one meal before my son and I go home and die. And he tells her, the Lord has provided. Does this not remind you of that place in the wilderness that's prepared for us? The place in the wilderness that God has prepared. And it's going to be done by the weak, by the meek, by the lowly, by those who have no power, by those who seem to have nothing within their strength to say, I can get through this by the strength of my own power. No. He says to her, the Lord will guarantee that the flower will not fail. And the Lord will guarantee that the oil will not fail. And he goes and he lives with this widow and the child for three and a half years. And the supplies never gave up. Now during this time, it's not just a happy time. It's not like she has all the food they could eat and everyone else is starving. They still are living through a drought during a very difficult time. As a matter of fact, things get from bad to worse even. The boy that she loves takes a fever. He dies. And she says something along these lines. Have you come to be near me, to just curse me? And now, because you have been around me, you remind me of my sin. That's what she says. You have come to bring my sin to my remembrance so that I may pay for my sin in the way you have taken away my son, or that how God has killed my son. And so Elijah is sent to his knees in prayer, and he takes the child up to where his room is, and he lays on top of the child and prays to God, and God gives his life back. And so we see that there is a, a time in our lives, in the life of the church, where all that we can do is understand and realize in time of need, in time of death, in time of all that is stressful to us, we have something that is very much more powerful than what we actually realize. Our power is not in what we own. Our power is not in our mental and capabilities, but it is in the Lord himself who hears our prayers. It is the prayers of a righteous man that availeth much. It is the God who answers our prayers. We seem to think, well, we've done everything we can. There is nothing left we can do. Oh, well, we can do that. We can pray. Seems to be the last resort. But it is one of the greatest abilities and strengths that a man has, that a person has in the sight of God. And this is what made Elijah different than the other prophets. As a matter of fact, he is known as the man who has the ear of God. He prayed and he and the heavens were shut up. He prayed again, and the heavens were opened. He prayed about the young boy, and his life came back. We have loved ones that we love, and many times they disappoint us. Many times they reject God and his gospel, but we pray for them, 
We said, well, we prayed for them last week, and they have not come, and we keep praying for them. Remember that the time of the church is for three and a half years until the very last day when God comes back. And so this period of time means that there is a place prepared for us that goes from the ascension of Christ to the very end when the judgment comes. It is our lifetime that we commit our needs to God in prayer. And God will do what he is going to do in his time, when the time is right. We must remember that God is, is, he, he, is he has the purpose to bless us. But we must have faith to wait for that time to come. We know the blessing is coming. We know the answer to our prayers is coming. But it may not be for a while for us. But I do know this. It cannot be stopped in its coming. We cannot slow it down. But remember that we cannot speed it up. It is when the fullness of time that God has said, this is my answer. It is coming. It is coming. And that's what we need to remember. In Kings chapter 18, three and a half years after he brought the drought, the Lord comes to him and said, it's time to go to talk to Ahab again. The time is up. And so he starts off away from the widow and starts to go back to where Ahab is living. And meanwhile, where Ahab is living, he has a servant by the name of Obadiah. Now, Ahab is concerned. He's not concerned about the people. He's concerned about his possessions. So he tells Ahab, we need to find some water and some grass because we have animals to feed. We have livestock, we have horses, we have this, we have that. It's not as though they're looking for water for the people or trying to improve things for the people, but he only has his own personal needs. And so he sends Obadiah on that quest and journey. Well, while Obadiah is looking for what Ahab has sent him to look, he meets Elijah on the road. Now, Obadiah is an interesting person. Jezebel, who happens to be the daughter of a foreign king, she's not an Israeli. I mean, she's not of the people of God. He, uh, Ahab married the daughter of a foreign king, and she was a devout worshiper of a Baal, and she, had a, uh, she killed all the Lord's prophets that she could find. All of them that she could find. But Obadiah, he still loved the Lord. And he found as many of the prophets of God that he could find. And he hid them away in a cave. He hid them by fifties. He had at least a hundred that he himself personally fed and provided water to in secret. Now, Elijah has this way of appearing and disappearing. He just has that way. The Lord gives him that ability. And right away when Obadiah saw him, he bowed himself down and said, you are the prophet of the Lord. And then uh, Elijah says to Obadiah, go tell Ahab, I want to see him. And right away, Obadiah says, everyone that's ever done this before, you have disappeared. And I know that if I go tell Ahab that you are here, you're going to disappear and Ahab's going to kill me. So what have I ever done to you that I should deserve this? I am actually on your side. I have protected the prophets of God. And then Ahab, I mean, uh, Elijah, actually makes a promise to him. 
So let me kind of read that text so that we can get it in context before we get there. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? Now you see the relationship there? But when, when Obadiah, you know, wanted to go to talk to him, it was, it was more like this. If I tell him you're here, he's going to kill me if you don't show up. And so Elijah actually swears to him and says, as I stand before the Lord, as the Lord lives, I will be there. And so when the two meet, he says this, Ahab and Elijah together. He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashereth who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, you see how he puts that. There are God's prophets who must be fed by widows. And then there are your prophets that eat at the table of the queen who kills God's prophets. Why don't we meet at Mount Carmel? And then he continues on and says, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people that heard that, after it was proclaimed, said, That's well said. I can accept that. Now remember, the issue is, which one is God? And the people... They want to say, let's get this settled. But what do you think the people are thinking? Do you really think that they're saying, I don't know who is God, and when I find out who's God, I'm going to follow him? Sometimes when people get into a debate, it's more like they're going to find out who's God, and I know what the answer is. Okay? Sometimes people listen to arguments not with listening ears, but with hopes of establishing what they already think. And I believe after we see what happens on Mount Carmel, we'll see where the people actually stand. So, the details are this. They all said, if whoever receives fire from heaven, that will be our God. So, what happens? Well, they meet at Mount Carmel. All the prophets show up. And Elijah has two bulls. And he says, you pick which one. There are more of you. You go ahead and set, it, set this up. You pick the one you want. And so the 450 prophets, they take that bull, they cut him up, they put him onto an altar. And they start at the beginning of the day to call upon Baal to bring down fire from heaven. And after a while, Elijah gets tired of listening to all their callings, and he begins to mock them. He begins to say, perhaps he's tired. Perhaps he's out of town. Maybe he just is hard of hearing if you do it louder. Eventually, during the evening, he says, perhaps you need to do something even more drastic. And they start to cut themselves and bleed with their own blood upon the bull and call down fire from heaven, but nothing happens. And so Elijah says, now it's my turn. And what does he do? He goes and he actually builds the altar. Now, it's already been built, but there is a description of how he does it. 
he takes 12 stones. Now, if you recall, 12 stones, which represent the tribes of, of Israel, that he is in the northern Israel, which are only 10 tribes. The two tribes to the south was Judah and Benjamin. But he says, this is the God of all of Israel. He included all of the tribes when he said, these are the stones that are going to make the altar. And it is an altar not polluted by hands, which means he didn't make a special nice looking altar. They're just rough stones. Rough stones the way we are. We are just rough people. We should not, we do not stand before God improving ourselves. We stand in the power of Christ who we wear his righteousness. And so upon that altar, he laid the wood and he laid the bull. And then he calls the other 450 prophets and say, I want you to get barrels of water and I want you to soak the wood. And Elijah actually dug a trench all the way around this altar. And he says, come and do that again. They do it three times where there's so much water on this altar that it drains down and fills the, 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 the trench. And when Elijah calls for God, the fire comes down from heaven in such a fervent heat that it not only consumes the offering, the bull, it actually consumes all the wood. It consumes even the stones and it consumes everything around the altar and even dried up and licked up all the water out of the ground. Now with that, you would think that the people would say, we finally know who is God. Who is God? Is Baal God or is the Lord God? And the people said, now we know that the Lord is God. But I don't think that's what they expected. They saw one man and 450 well-fed, well-groomed, nice-looking prophets that looked like, well, they're in charge. And Elijah was this rough-looking guy like John the Baptist. And he was just all by himself. And so Elijah, I want you to put yourself in his shoes. I want you to kind of think the way he thought. Finally, finally, people will know that the Lord is God. My battle's done. My work here is done. I have finally was able to prove this. And who can turn it down? Who can deny this? And yet, what happens? He tells Ahab right there at the time, you better get going because rain is coming it's going to be really a lot of rain. And so he kneels down and starts to pray. Now he has a servant there with him, like an apprentice, but a servant. And he prays and he says, go to the shore and look to the west and see if you see anything. And he comes back and says, I don't see anything. Well, this happens seven times. But on the seventh time, the, the man comes back and said, I see a small cloud about the size of your own hand. And uh, that's when he tells Ahab, you better get going because the rain is coming hard and fast. And so Ahab gets in his chariot, his entourage, and he races over to where his home is, where Jezebel is. Now, Elijah, now, this is how I see it. Elijah says to himself, I'm going to be there when the, when, when the news is broken. I want to see Jezebel, when she actually has to admit the Lord is God, and I was wrong, and the Baals, they're not God. 
He wants to see that. He outruns the chariot. Uh, that's a miracle to me. He outruns the chariot and is there waiting. And then this is where we begin to read from the beginning. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the one of one of those by tomorrow at this time. And so Elijah, the ESV puts it this way, ran for his life. But I like the way the King James put it, where the King James actually put it like this. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, what, what is the big difference there? Well, the difference is that the translators of the King James use this idea that when he saw, but actually he just heard the news, did he? But you see, sometimes we use the word see to invoke the idea of understanding, of really kind of like, you know, I didn't see this coming. Now I can see it. Now I understand. Jezebel had never intended to agree that the Lord is God. This only invoked her even more. Her anger became even greater. And when we, as like Elijah, are going to preach the gospel in this present age, in this present world. We may say, who can argue with what we have said? It is so clearly understood. Who can argue with the scriptures? Who can say that this is not true? And even the world may say, well, yeah, yeah, that's a really, really good point. You know what? We still hate God. And they still come after God. And they will not relinquish or they will not hold back the type of persecution that they intend to give. And so many times people say, Elijah was brave like a lion on Mount Carmel, but he trembled like a coward before Jezebel. I think what we need to take away here is not to criticize Elijah that much and say, perhaps I see a little bit of myself in Elijah because in our own lives, no matter how much success God gives us, it seems when the world says, I still don't believe, then we just seem to all go, it's no use. It's no use. And we start hearing the words of Eeyore. Oh, it'll never work out. It just doesn't ever work. But I want you to see what happens to Elijah. In his running away from Jezebel, let's see what happens. In verse number four, we read this. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. I would imagine that's about 20 miles. Now, this wilderness is the very same wilderness that the children of Israel were in when Moses led them. He found the juniper tree and he sat underneath this tree. Now, a juniper tree is... It's a tree that doesn't smell very well. It has these special type of oils that come off of it. Sometimes people will render the oil out of a juniper tree to use it to, um, as an insect repellent or as some type of, uh, 
you know, essential oil that isn't really that good smelling, but it's also used to get rid of things. And so if you wanted to have a nice, relaxing time, you wouldn't sit under one of these stinking trees. I believe that it had to do with there is shade, but also the type of shade that you're receiving it is not going to be that pleasant to be under. And this is where he said, you know, I've just had enough of this. Oh, Lord, just take away my life. I'm no better than the fathers that were before me. And what fathers do you think he was referring to? Well, he's in the wilderness. You see how the ones who in the wilderness, they complained about God. And God said, no, if you're going to complain, you'll die in the wilderness and I'll bring in the next generation. In. And Elijah was at that point that says, you know what? I'm ready to go with him. I'm just ready to, to give up and to die in this wilderness. But we can see that this is not what God had intended. And so we're going to read from the ESV a little bit more. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. That's what it says in ESV. It's translated juniper tree in, in, in the KJV. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and lay down again. This is the type of daily bread that God is going to bring his, his church in this age. He's going to make sure that we have the manna from heaven, the, the water of life. He's going to keep us and sustain us in this wilderness. And the angel of the Lord said again a second time, and he touched him. Isn't that interesting that the description of the word says the angel touched him, put his hand on him, and perhaps even shook him and said, wake up. There's food to eat. There's food for you. Because arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. Now I want you to understand for all of us. Without the grace and help of God, the journey is too great for us. It truly is. The journey in this life is too great for us. But God provides the truth of his word. God provides the spirit of his own self to say, listen to my words. Let my words, let the truth guide you. Do not listen to yourself. Do not listen to anything. But listen to the words of God. Listen to the manna that comes from heaven. Listen to the water that only comes from the, uh, from the fountain of life that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he arose and he drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. And he found Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And when he got to that mountain, by the way, this is the very same mountain that Moses went up into. And he said, oh, Lord, show me your glory. And he says, you cannot see my glory, but I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. Now, that cleft of a rock is like a cave. And I believe, this is my opinion, that this very cleft was the same cave that Moses was in when God put his hand over and said he passed by. And now we find Elijah there. Find Elijah looking for encouragement from God. And he said, this is what he heard. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. What are we doing here? And what are we going to do? God is going to show us it's not by great movements of mountains where the wind comes and blows and where the earthquakes come and shake and where the fire comes from heaven. But it will be the 
still small voice of God coming, and it is His Word, the Word of Truth. We cannot live by sight, but we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God is going to ask us, what are you doing here? And we must understand that the workings of God is coming. God is going to bless him. And after this experience, God says, now I want you to go to a man and anoint him king in Syria. Now, what does that have to do with anything? It is that king that destroys the entire house of Ahab. I want you to go and anoint another king in Israel besides Ahab. That king also destroys the entire house of Ahab. Now, at that point, he also says, now find Elisha and he will take your place. At this point, he's given encouragement to know that you have done what I want you to do and the next generation shall carry on. I want us to know that God has not forgotten us here. He has not. He is going to answer our prayers. The gospel will continue on. There will be people preaching the gospel, but we need to be true to the gospel and preach it. We need to hear the still small voice of God and remind people there is the law of God that will shake you to your boots. It'll bring fire into your life. It'll scare the daylights out of you. But there is the still small voice of the gospel of Christ that will speak peace to you, that will enable you, like Elijah, who says, as I am Elijah, who stand in the presence of God. I stand before God. And that is what the gospel we need to preach to others. To stand before a holy God, you need to hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit that says, trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel that we must continue to preach. And so with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and for your grace. We thank you for loving us. And we pray, Lord, that we, like Elijah, might listen to your still, small voice and understand that we, might, we must preach the law of God, that the gospel will be received by those who seek shelter and safety in Christ. So, Father, give us encouragement. Let us not be discouraged. Let us rise up and be people of prayer. Let us commit ourselves to God, for we know that your help is coming. We know that it is on its way. It cannot be delayed, and it cannot be sped up. But we know, Father, that you are here our prayers. And so, Father, bless your people. Help us. Help us, Father. We pray in our Lord's name. Amen.